Well, good morning, New Hope family. If we haven't met, my name is Gary Post. I'm the care pastor here. In fact, even if we have met, my name is still Gary Post. I'm the care pastor here. You don't know how much mileage I've gotten out of that joke. Uh, this morning, uh, what I'm speaking about is uh, under the category of practical Christian living. Practical Christian living. Really a follow-up to, to Joe's message from last week where he talked about the, the need to balance grace and obedience. That is, we know that everything we have through Christ is by grace, that we can't earn it. And yet, uh, at the same time, the Apostle Paul calls us, he says, uh, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. In other words, it matters how we live, right? Uh, we, we live out of gratitude uh, to Jesus Christ. And um, uh, Scripture tells us we're not our own. We've been bought with a price. So glorify God in your, in your body. So uh, this morning, we're going to be talking about uh, dealing with anger wisely, common human emotion. And I, I think I've had a couple people just in the past week say, uh, I'm so glad that uh, you're going to talk about this because this has really been an issue uh, for me. Let's, uh, let's begin with prayer, though, shall we? Dear Father, we thank you for this time together this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to focus on your word. And we, we know that any, nothing of any consequence will, will, um, will occur this morning. Nothing of any eternal consequence will occur this morning without your Holy Spirit's power. So I, we ask that you empower uh, those who listen. We ask that you empower the messenger as well. And that you accomplish all of your purposes that you have in mind for our time together this morning. That, uh, that we'll do what we know how to do as human beings, but, but we pray that you do what only you can do in our hearts and minds. Impress the power of your word uh, on us and, uh, and change us in the process. We pray especially for Mark and Laura Lee as they continue to recover from COVID. Lord, you're the great physician. You said that you're the one who heals us and that you said that when we pray in faith that you'll raise up the one who's sick. And so we pray for Mark and Laura Lee this morning as well, that you bring them through this, that you restore them to health completely and that you would do that quickly, Lord, so that they can get back to their ministry. We pray, this, uh, we pray all these things, Lord, in the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, you know, everywhere we turn, it seems like everyone is so angry. I don't know if you've noticed that as well in our, in our culture. But um, it seems like there's always a stream of news reports uh, about angry incidents that erupt into violence, increasing gun violence and road rage, road rage uh, incidents, angry protests that erupt into violence, anger and bullying on social media, uh, cable news programs where... Uh, people are shouting at each other from different perspectives, and that's the norm. And, and I would say that continuing exposure, continuing immersion in that climate of uh, hate and hostility and anger and violence in the media and on social media can steal our peace. I don't know if that's uh, been your experience or not, but it can steal our peace, and it, it can interfere with who God calls us to be in this world as, as messengers of, of God's peace. So uh, Katie Morton, a, a therapist and author, says this about that. She says, that is yet another reason. We need to be careful about what we see and say online. If we spend all our day watching and reading content about people being unsafe, uh, hurt, and horrible to each other, it's going to be hard to think about the world positively. In families, and even in Christian families, and in workplaces, angry outbursts are all too common, and the way that we han handle anger and rage often does lasting damage to relationships among adults. It, it has an especially destructive impact on the long-term physical and psychological and emotional health of our kids when they're exposed to it. And it, in fact, it interferes with their ability to have effective adult relationships when they, when they become adults. As an example, a, a couple, uh, many of you know that uh, much of my work is counseling, and uh, a couple who came to me a few years ago said, uh, I said, how can I help you? They said, we have so much conflict in our marriage. And I said, well, how are you managing that? 
They said, well, pretty much we stand toe-to-toe with each other and shout at each other, and then we stomp off with it unresolved. And, and, and I said, well, how's that working for you? And, and, they, and we all had a laugh, and, and they said, not very well. That's why we're here. I said, well, there's good news. Uh, it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, there are, there are more constructive ways to resolve conflict that leave you both feeling good about it and will actually help you feel more connected. But uh, come to find out that uh, both, of, both sets of parents, both their families of origin, that's the way conflict was resolved. They thought that that's the way everybody did it. And I said, no, that's not the case. And, and in fact, uh, uh, that can be very destructive. The Bible has much to say about anger, where it comes from, and whether it's always sinful, how to handle the emotion of anger wisely in a way that honors God. So today we're going to look at the example of Abigail in uh, 1 Samuel 25 as a woman who responded to anger well in a way that honored God, in a way that saved her family from destruction. And we'll get to that. But first of all, let's talk a little bit about where anger comes from. And is it always a sin? Is all anger sinful? Well, evidently not, right? Because uh, we see that God is repeatedly described in Scripture as feeling the emotion of anger. And yet we know he's perfectly righteous and holy and just, and that he does not sin. So uh, in Numbers 14, 18, for example, we're told that the Lord is slow to anger. Now, it doesn't say he never gets there. It says he's slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does become angry. And that's expressed again in, uh, in his words to Israel through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 44, 8, he says, Why do you provoke me to anger? He's speaking to Israel now. Why do you provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, making offerings to other gods in the land of Egypt where you've come to live, so that you may be cut off and become a curse and a taunt among all the nations of the earth? So anger is part of a range of emotions that God experiences and feels in response to willful disobedience, uh, injustice, to the, uh, against the innocence and, and, uh, and sinful behavior. And as those created in the image of God, we can experience the same range of emotions. We have the capacity to feel the same emotions, including anger. But feeling the emotion of anger is not necessarily sinful, is it? In fact, it can be a godly response that addresses evil and injustice and, uh, and protects us and, and those that we love. Here's an example. Uh, Jesus himself, if, you're, if you remember the example in John 2, uh, Jesus made a whip out of ropes and then he, he drove the money changers out of the temple. And, and he did that because the, the religious leaders of the day had perverted the purpose of, of that, uh, gent, that uh, court of the Gentiles. Uh, the religious leaders of the day had set up a money-making uh, venture of a flea market, if you will, where there were money changers and animals sold in the very place where the Gentiles were supposed to worship God. That's why Jesus was so indignant about that, that he put together a whip out of ropes and he, he drove people out of there and said, uh, you know, how dare you do this? On behalf of his father, he was, he was angry, acting in God's behalf out of righteous indignation. You know, when I was a small boy, and another example, when I was a small boy, I remember over 60 years ago, I was on a, a merry-go-round. Now, I don't even know that they have merry-go-rounds anymore. I don't know that we're allowed to have merry-go-rounds anymore. But it, it was a circular device that some of you remembered it. it had handles on it, and it, it spun around. And, uh, and so we were on, I was on this with a bunch of other little kids. And, uh, and I think it was a guy who was a, a teenager or, or maybe an, a young adult came up and just started spinning it very recklessly and violently, very fast. In fact, a couple of the other kids flew off it because it was so, uh, it was, he spun it so fast. And, and in a flash, uh, my dad was, my dad came up. He just appeared out of, out of nowhere and, uh, and he confronted this guy. He stopped the merry-go-round and there was an angry confrontation. I thought there was going to be a fist fight. Uh, but the other guy backed off and, and, um, and my dad acted in anger. He was very angry. I didn't see him angry often, but he was very angry. He acted out of anger to protect us in that situation, you see. And another example, um, perhaps like me, you were outraged when you heard what had been done by a doctor at MSU to the hundreds of young women, young female gymnasts at uh, MSU over the past decade. 
If you felt that kind of anger and outrage, that's righteous anger. That's appropriate. That's legitimate because of the evil that's been done to those young women. And then finally, uh, another example, a young wife approached me recently and uh, she apologized for being angry about a husband who had betrayed and rejected her and, and abandoned her uh, with her son. And I, I told her that uh, her anger wasn't, wasn't sinful. She didn't need to apologize for that. In fact, it was entirely legitimate and appropriate given the fact that, that she'd been uh, victimized. So the answer is that uh, uh, anger in response to evil or injustice directed toward us is, is not sinful, but our reaction, our reaction in anger can be sinful and destructive to us in our relationships with others. I often, uh, when I talk with couples, I, I often encourage them, I, I tell them that, look, uh, conflict is inevitable, in, even in healthy relationships, because we're merging two lives together, right? That's a messy business, isn't it? Yeah, so the conflict is inevitable. You're two different people. Uh, but it doesn't have to be unhealthy. Unresolved conflict is actually the enemy. And I, and I encourage them to be careful with their words during conflict because words are weapons. And angry ac uh, accusations and character assassination can do damage, can leave deep wounds that can't be repaired with a simple apology. A partner wonders, uh, did she really mean that? Is that the way he really feels about me? can be very destructive, and it can undermine the emotional intimacy, that is, the sense of connectedness that we need, and the personal uh, regard that we need, the, the positive regard that we need between us in order to maintain a, a healthy relationship. Some, some will say, well, uh, that's just me. I can't help it. That just comes, uh, that's just who I am. I, that's just being honest. I say, no, that's not being honest. That's just being cruel. And uh, there, can we all agree that there are things in our heads that should never come out of our mouths, right? Yeah, uh, of course there are. Uh, we're, uh, we're still works in progress in, in terms of the way that God's working in our lives. One final note on where anger comes from. Not all anger comes in response to evil and injustice that's occurring right now in the present. In fact, some of the anger that uh, partners and others uh, sometimes bring into our marriage relationship is... Uh, is, has its origin in painful and traumatic and disappointing experiences that occurred earlier in life. Mylan and Kay Yurkovich, uh, marriage and family counselors in the book How We Love, put it this way. They said, for 15 years, we did not understand this simple truth. Our marriage problems didn't start in our marriage. There were childhood wounds beneath our most irritating behaviors. In other words, painful and uh, discouraging experiences earlier in life uh, can result in anger and resentment, bitterness, unforgiveness that can surface in our current marriage, family, and our workplace and, uh, and poison our ability to have healthy relationships and, until we recognize what happened to us, acknowledge the impact that it's had on us, and then learn new strategies to approach those situations in more positive and healthy ways. And that can even be intergenerational. I had one man say to me, uh, 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 the couple came to me with um, 30 years in a marriage and she was just about ready to walk away because of his anger. And he said, Gary, I know this has been my problem. He said, I know this, all this is my problem. He said, I'm, I'm angry. My father was angry. My, my grandfather was angry before him. You see, it's intergenerational. We model that for each other as a way of functioning in relationships and it's very destructive. Gary Chapman, in his book, uh, Anger, Taming a Powerful Emotion, says there's a, a three-step process. If you're carrying around stored-up anger, resentment, bitterness, and rage, he says a three-step process for releasing that is, uh, first of all, to think back on, as far as you can, make a two-column list. In the first column, the names of people who hurt you. In the second column, uh, what they did that hurt you. And, and then focus on each of those instances in prayer, asking God to allow you to release the anger and unforgiveness that you feel, and, and turning each person and the wrong they committed against you over to God to do what he thinks best in that situation. And then thirdly, ask God. Ask God for his Holy Spirit's power to release you 
from the control of that stored up anger and that bitterness and unforgiveness to live out the grace and the love of Jesus Christ to those who hurt you. Well, in 1 Samuel 25 today, we're going to look at three different ways of handling anger with, uh, with Nabal, with David, and with Abigail. And let's begin with uh, 1 Samuel 25, verses 1 through 8, uh, David's request for a favor. Now, this uh, David was the, the uh, David who would uh, become King David. Shortly, he'd been anointed by Samuel, uh, the uh, great prophet who had just died. And so we'll read about that. Now, Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. That was part of the custom of the day that they would be buried in their house. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Man whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was, a discer was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. And those apparently were his good qualities. We'll find out more about him. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and your son David. Now, David was a fugitive on the run from King Saul. He had about 600 men with him, we're told. And he'd already distinguished himself in battle. He'd been anointed as the next king of Israel. And, and Nabal was a rich, but the, uh, the Hebrew word here implies these descriptors. Rich, but harsh, boorish, badly behaved, surly, and evil. In other words, not a nice man. Whose, whose shearers and sheep had been protected by David's men uh, earlier. And so um, in those days, it was a lawless time. And so um, if... If, you're, if you could be uh, close to a group of armed men who would agree to protect you and your possessions, that is, your flocks and herds in that day, uh, that, was a, that was a good thing. And David had done that for Nabal and his, his people. And so what he's asking is that, uh, uh, to return the favor. In, in that culture, um, I would do you a favor, and so you would owe me, and you would return the favor then. So... So Abigail, uh, Nabal's wife, was described as, as beautiful, discerning, understanding, and wise. Now you might say, if she was so wise, why did she marry Nabal? Well, uh, we have to understand that in that culture, it was probably an arranged marriage. She probably did not have a choice in, in that matter, but she certainly understood who Nabal was. David asked for a favor here, and that was, uh, that was part of that culture, a gift of provisions for his men. The shearing... Uh, was a time of a festival. It was a, a feast day. So there would have been plenty of food and David's request um, to uh, return the favor in return for the protection he had provided. To return the favor was entirely consistent with the expectations for hospitality in that culture at that time. Presented as a request with the appropriate level of courtesy and, uh, and deference to Nabal. So let's look at uh, no problem so far, right? But let's look at Nabal's response in uh, verses 9 through 11. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. <clears throat> and, and Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers? Shall I give it to men who come from I do not know where? So, you notice that Nabal just didn't politely refuse 
and, and uh, explain why he couldn't help. Rather, he insulted David. He treated, with, he treated him with contempt. Who's David? Who's the son of Jesse, anyway? Uh, why should I care, in other words? So he insulted David and his family. Now, in that culture, in that day, when they were so closely tied to family, uh, David, the son of Jesse, uh, when family was such an important value to them, to insult a man and insult his family was, was probably the worst expression of disrespect that you could make. It was an expression of, of disdain, of contempt. So Nabal failed to understand a basic biblical principle of diffusing conflict in human relationships. And that, we find that in Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. How many times have you seen that happen, right? People who treat those around them with anger and with contempt and disdain destroy relationships. That's just the way it works. In, in a marriage or any relationship, the continued uncontrolled venting of anger on another will ultimately destroy that relationship. No one can survive a continual flogging from day to day. Over time, it destroys the, the mutual positive regard and the emotional intimacy, that sense of connectedness that we need to survive and to thrive. Uh, Leslie Vernick in her book, uh, the, uh, the Emotionally Destructive Marriage, puts it this way. Emotionally, uh, emotional abuse systematically degrades, diminishes, and can eventually destroy the personhood of the abused. You see, one angry accusation triggers a hurtful response. The conflict escalates until the pattern creates a, a downward negative spiral. Everything becomes a trigger. It's focused more on winning the immediate battle than it is on restoring a healthy relationship where, where both people get their needs met. Now let's look at David's knee-jerk response. This is how David deals with his anger in uh, verses 12 through 17. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. Uh, but one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. We did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day. In other words, they were our protection, both by night and by day, in that lawless environment. Now therefore know this, and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. This is a servant. Uh, talking to the wife of the master uh, and describes her husband as such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. So two things happened. David, first of all, became angry immediately, knee-jerk. He was, he was uh, triggered. And, and number two, David made a deliberate decision what to do about that anger. He determined that he was going to respond to that insult with violence. And he was going to kill a lot of innocent people in the process. David ignored two biblical principles for handling anger in relationships. First of all, that losing our temper will not accomplish God's purposes in that situation. Uh, we read in James 1, Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Allowing anger to dictate our words and our actions gives Satan the chance to defeat us, destroy our human relationships, and neutralize our influence for the kingdom. It damages our testimony, doesn't it, in the world. And so we see um, uh, Paul's advice in Ephesians 4, and and do not sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. Bradley asked us uh, during worship, he asked us to consider 
the strongholds in our lives. Anger can be a stronghold in our lives. It's also a foothold. It's an opening for Satan to intrude into our lives and, and damage our relationships and our, our testimony, our, our, uh, our life with God. David was allowing his anger to, to dictate his decision-making rather than stopping to ask God how he would have him respond in this situation. Gary Chapman comments on the destructive impact of explosive anger on relationships. He says, explosive angry behavior is never constructive. It not only hurts the person at whom it's directed, it destroys the self-esteem of the person who is out of control. He suggests five steps to handle our anger. He says, uh, first of all, consciously acknowledge to yourself that you're angry. Some of us aren't even self-aware enough to recognize when we're angry. Well, I'm just frustrated. Well, no, you're, you're really, we're really angry. Uh, consciously becoming self-aware of the fact that we're angry uh, helps to stop that destructive knee-jerk response that we see in David here, lashing out with angry words or, or actions. It pauses the action uh, long enough for us to apply reason uh, to our emotions and consider our options. One person said to me once, well, I can't, just, I can't help it. You know, when my wife triggers me like that, I just explode. And, and I'll say, you can't help it. That's interesting. I said, can you help it when you're with your boss? Do you explode on your boss like that? Well, no. Well, why not? Oh, because of the consequences. What would happen? I said, well, then you can control it, can't you? And, and we, we need to control it. We need to recognize that it, it is something that with God's help that, that we can control. And then we need to restrain our immediate response. We need to break the cycle by not taking the action that comes instinctively, by stopping, and, and the, that action is usually either angry venting, hurtful accusations, and damaging assaults on the other person's character, or, uh, or withdrawal. Many times as men, I like to say we withdraw to our cave. You know, rather than, rather than using our words, we just go to our cave, or, or we or we lash out, but usually we, we withdraw. And then sometimes uh, either partner can use silence and, and, and emotional distance as a weapon in the relationship. That's not right either. That's just passive aggressive anger, right? So we need to restrain our immediate response. One young friend of mine who struggles with anger told me, uh, she said, Gary, before she responds to uh, feelings of anger, it helps to stop and pray for a moment to God to help her guide her words and her actions. And then thirdly, we need to locate the focus of our anger. What is it that's, that the other has said or, or done that has made us so angry? Identify that offense and uh, determine how serious it really is. The seriousness of the offense will help in formulating an appropriate response. If it's the case that our anger is all out of proportion to the offense, then we have to ask ourselves, is it because that we're projecting unresolved anger that we're carrying around with us from the past? Are we projecting that onto someone in the, in the present? If that's the case, then it keeps us stuck in that cycle of conflict and tension. Fourthly, we need to analyze our options. Ask yourself, does the action that I'm considering have the potential for dealing with this wrong in a way that's likely to lead to a positive resolution for both of us? Or, or is it just intended to hurt and damage uh, the other person? Is it best for both me and the other person involved? The, the two most constructive options are, are to confront the person with our words in a gentle, helpful way, or deliberately make a decision to, to overlook the matter. We don't have to fight every battle. You know, uh, forgiveness is, is unilateral, isn't it? It can be. Forgiveness can be unilateral. We don't need the other person to give us permission to forgive. Uh, we can simply forgive and extend the same grace that God gives to us. We can extend that same grace to the other person who's hurt us, and we can forgive. Grant it graciously. And finally, take constructive action if we choose to Overlook the offense. Pray that God will release you from the anger that you feel. Allow you to forgive the other person. Turn that person and the offense over to, to God. If you choose to confront, do it gently from a spirit of humility. And listen to the explanation to, 
to truly understand the other person's intentions. If the person acknowledges they're wrong and apologizes, ask for forgiveness and grant it graciously and move on. Folks, nothing stops conflict. Nothing extinguishes anger as quickly as an apology, right? Some of you have experienced that. You, you apologize and suddenly all, all the tension kind of leaks out of the situation. Uh, the other person is disarmed by it if, uh, if in fact, you're, you're at fault. So I, I tell couples, uh, look, I, I ask them, uh, grace and forgiveness, I tell them, grace and forgiveness is a thread that runs through every healthy relationship. And um, I ask them, is it easy to ask for and receive forgiveness in your relationship? Is it easy to do? Um, many times it's not. They don't have any experience with that. And when we have to learn how to, how to forgive, how to ask for and receive forgiveness. When, it, when they say, no, that's not, that doesn't come easy to us, then I say, well, was that true in your family of origin? I've never had one instance where it was not, where it was not uh, easy for a couple to forgive that uh, it was easy in their family of origin, you see? We learn that in the living room many times, that kind of humility and, and grace. Let's look at uh, Abigail's wise response to anger that saved her family. Verses 18 through 31. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs. Sounds like what you take on a hike, right? And laid them on donkeys. Actually, that, that was very, these were the kinds of provisions that uh, would, be, Egypt, would uh, be part of an Egyptian army's uh, provisions uh, when, they, when they were on the march. She laid them on donkeys, but she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Talk about, talk about frightening. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. But when Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey, fell before David on her face, and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me, on me alone, O Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let, my Lord, let, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. I want to say Nabal is his name and folly is his game, right? <laughs> she knows who he is. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives... And as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the, tr the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a, a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord." and evil shall not be found in you so long as you shall live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living. That's a Hebrew expression. Shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you, Prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed the blood, shed blood without cause, or for my Lord taking vengeance himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. What emotions do you suppose Abigail felt when she, on that donkey, saw David and 400 armed men coming down the hill? Well, you can bet that there was fear wasn't there. Uh, but her courage overrode her fear. And uh, certainly there was anger as well. I'm sure she was angry with Nabal for, for what he had done, the, 
the jeopardy that, she, that uh, he had put her family in. But instead of wasting time, venting anger on Nabal, she took constructive action. She knew that uh, later we'll find out that he was a drunk. And you can't reason with a drunk. She, she knew that. Abigail made haste. She hurried to assemble uh, a peace offering for David's men. And then she gave orders to her young men. She said, get that convoy moving in his direction. And then she didn't tell Nabal because in, in the, the words of the servant, he's such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. She knew who Nabal was. Nothing would be gained by talking with him, so she didn't waste the time. She rode out to meet David with an attitude of humility and took responsibility for what happened. And she asked for David's forgiveness for her husband's foolishness and contempt. You see, once again, she led with an apology, didn't she? She led with an apology and a blessing for David. And, and she used her words to stir David's heart and change him uh, to allow him to release his anger. Uh, Abigail delivered a blessing on David and then gently appealed to David's better nature and, and for the man that God has called, had called him to be. She said, when the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him, has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or having avenged himself. David strapped on his sword because he was treated with disrespect and contempt. But he laid it aside because Abigail had the courage to challenge him to be a better man. She said, this is not who you are. This is not the man that God has called you to be. In the same way, sometimes we need to stop the conflict in order to rethink who we want to be. Leslie Vernick, again, in The Emotionally Destructive Marriage, proposes three questions to be asked of a husband or a wife to diffuse conflict and begin a, a positive conversation. This is, this is called using our words. I often say to folks, uh, I often, if you've worked with me at all as a couple, I, you've heard me say, folks, we need to use our words. We need to use our words. We need to talk to each other about what we're feeling what our concerns are, what we're happy with, what we're dissatisfied with. We need to work those things out using our words. She used her words. This is using your words as well. First question, are you happy? Are you happy? And your goal here is, is to hear your husband's or your wife's feelings and listen compassionately. At the end, you want him to feel heard and understood, not judged, shamed, criticized, or, or condemned. Second question, what do you see as our most important goal or our biggest challenge as a couple if we want to improve our relationship? Again, listen well. Reflect back what you hear about what's shared and, and the feeling behind it. But don't become defensive or respond angrily, even if what your partner says is, is hard to hear. Then thirdly, this, this uh, sounds like Abigail. What kind of husband and father or wife or mother uh, do you most desire to be? Listen again, listen compassionately without uh, challenging or arguing or, or reacting defensively. Honest talk, Leslie says, honest talk when bathed in compassionate listening builds intimacy. That is soothing balm for a broken marriage. Well, let's look at David's response to Abigail's wise words, uh, verses 32 through 38. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. He recognized that God used Abigail to intervene in this situation. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal as much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all till the morning light. Can't talk to a drunk. 
in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things and his, his heart died within him and he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. So David recognized immediately that God had sent Abigail to restrain him from a, symbol, a, single, a, a sinful act. David, what David learned was that God desires patience and self-control over anger and violence. Proverbs 16.32 tells us this. Better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. David learned to give his desire for vengeance to God to deal with. Uh, and the Apostle Paul told us the same thing in Romans 12, 19. He said, Beloved, never avenge yourself. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. When David released his anger and his desire for vengeance, and God responded by bringing justice. And in the end, God acted to bring an end to Nabal. And uh, if you read just a little bit further, you'll find out that after uh, he learned Nabal was dead. Uh, he sent for Ab Abigail and, and made her his wife. So how do we respond to angry people in our lives in a way that honors God and reflects Christ's character within us? Abigail was successful in, in stopping David's anger and saving her family because she, she calmly took, took a constructive action that responded to the disrespect that David felt at Nabal's insult. Angry people often feel like they've been wronged, don't they? And, and I find that the, the most effective response is listening, is listening. Uh, some of you know that uh, in, my, in my previous career, I was a state trooper for 26 years. I retired way back in 2000, a long time ago. But one of the things I, uh, as a trooper, I, obviously I encountered many angry people. And, and often the most response was, the most effective response was, was simply uh, to say, I, I see that you're angry. Why don't you slow down and, and tell me what happened? And as we talked and I, I listened to them attentively, I could see that their anger de-escalated. And it, it was because they were heard and understood. That's what we all want, isn't it? To be heard and understood about, about our concern. And that part of my work in the, in the state police was I, I was a part of the SWAT team. For a number of years, I was a SWAT team leader for six and a half years. And, and even then, same principle applies. Our, our most effective strategies for diffusing those situations involving barricaded gunmen and hostage takers was all about, it wasn't so much about weapons and tactics. Yes, those things are important. But it was much more important that we, we uh, communicated well. If our negotiators could ratchet down the tension and, and build rapport with a, a gunman so that they felt heard and, and understood over a period of hours, uh, sooner or later, 90% of the time, they'd put down the rifle and come out. Listening with empathy is important. So the four-step process for responding to any angry person, acknowledge their anger and your intent to listen and understand. I see you're angry. Tell me what's on your mind. What happened to upset you? Help me understand. In other words, uh, secondly, listen attentively, reflecting back both content and feelings. This is what that might sound like. So it, it sounds like you were treated very badly. That must have been very discouraging for you. Content and feelings. Resist the urge to defend or point out their faults or try to fix them or tell them what they should have done. That never works. The goal in de-escalating anger with another person is empathy, help, helping them to feel heard and and understood. And then ask what, if anything, that you can do to help. If the anger is justifiably directed at you, the perfect time for an apology, and, and you'll see the, the anger just uh, drain away uh, if, uh, if indeed you're at fault and, and you can apologize in that situation. Take the opportunity to apologize, ask forgiveness. If appropriate, explain your intentions. If it's not your fault, you can at least say, what can I do? Can I pray with you? Can I help in some other way? Now, I, I don't want to leave, uh, leave that topic without saying that there, are, there is the, uh, the need sometimes for godly assertiveness in responding 
to angry people, especially when habitual angry outbursts are used to manipulate, bully, abuse, and control in relationships. Uh, the appropriate thing to say would be something like this. I see that you're angry, but I can't talk with you when you're shouting at me. When you've calmed down, I would be happy to discuss it and, and try to resolve the problem with you. And then when there's a continuing pattern of abusive and, and demeaning communication, uh, we should assert our, our right to be treated with respect. I deserve to be treated with respect in our relationship. When you yell or swear at or call me names and so on, I feel disrespected, unloved, anxious, and angry. It hurts me. It damages our marriage. Please speak to me with courtesy and respect. And then be prepared with consequences if that doesn't happen. An example of an appropriate consequence for repeated verbal and physical abuse uh, from Gary Chapman here. A man named Paul found the following note on the kitchen table when he came home. I love you too much to stay and let you hurt me and destroy our, your self-esteem. I know you cannot be happy about what happened last night. I will not return until your counselor assures me that you've learned to handle your anger in a more responsible way. Those are consequences. And uh, folks, if, if you didn't pick up a copy of the, the uh the study notes that go with this message, you can pick one up on the way out. I, I've included all the quotes and scripture and everything else in there, so you don't have to scribble. Lastly, how can we live, given all this, how can we live distinctively as followers of Jesus Christ in an angry world? Well, the, the Apostle Paul calls us to a higher standard of behavior in our relationships. We can't just copy the world and, and the way that they respond. As followers of Jesus Christ, we're called to put off, that is to discard old behaviors that hold us back and to put on the character of Christ. And, and one place that, that Paul tells us about that is in Colossians 3. He describes our, our old self, that is what we were before Christ. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ. In other words, if you're followers of Jesus Christ, if you have Jesus living within you, you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. This is what we want to jettison. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. The image is, is taking off an old dirty set of clothes and, and putting on a brand new suit of clothes that are, are perfect and, uh, and wonderful. So he says we do that he says we're being renewed in knowledge in the image of our creator. So God is changing us over time as we engage with him and yield to the Holy Spirit. Now the new man, he says, this is what you ought to look like. Get rid of all those other things. This is, this is what your behavior ought to look like in your human relationships. Not just marriage, any human relationship. <clears throat> Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves. There's that imagery again, putting on putting on a suit of clothes, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Now, actually, I've created a refrigerator magnet that has those verses on it. Uh, Colossians 3, 12 through 14. And when I meet with a couple, I, I give them uh, the gift of each a refrigerator magnet. Uh, and I said, is this what your relationship looks like? Is it characterized by these traits, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and so on? Uh, is that what your relationship looks like? If not, that's the goal. That's what we need to shoot for. That's what uh, Jesus has said. He will empower us to act like in our, in our human relationships. You might say, that's impossible. I'm only human. Well, that's very common that I hear that. And, and I'll say, that's absolutely right. We can't behave like that as human, in our own effort as human beings. But what, what God has said is that he intends to empower us to do just that. We have to empower, be empowered by the Spirit of God to live out Christ's character in this world. Paul tells us in Galatians 5, 16, so he says, walk by the Spirit, that is, Open yourself up to the Holy Spirit. Ask for, allow the Holy Spirit to influence your actions. 
Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Well, what are the desires of the flesh anyway? What is that all about? Well, I'm glad you asked. The desires of the flesh that Paul's talking about are in uh, Galatians 5, 19 and 21. Now, now it says, uh, he says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity or hatred, right? Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. All those are things that may have been part of our old life. They should not be part of our new life. And, and God is prepared to, to transform us from the inside out, to change us into the image of Christ. And so in contrast, the Holy Spirit can empower us then to live lives that reflect the character of Jesus Christ. This is what that looks like. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit or uh, what the Spirit of God produces in us over time as we engage with Him. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, self-control, self-control in our emotions, in our, in our actions. So, living distinctively as followers of Jesus Christ in this angry world is not a do-it-yourself project. We can't just say, well, tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I'm going to behave differently. It doesn't work like that. The work of God in our lives over time requires that we make the choice to not simply copy the angry patterns of behavior that we see in the, in the world around us, but rather daily cultivate our relationship with our Heavenly Father and, and uh, by being in His Word and in prayer so that God can change us over time. We ask His Holy Spirit to do what we alone cannot do, and that is live out Christ's character through us in this world. Sound good? Yeah, let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Lord, we, we want to live like that too. We want Jesus Christ and his character to be evidenced in our lives. We want, when, when we interact with other human beings, we want them to see Jesus Christ in us. So we ask that your Holy Spirit would empower each of us as we go out into the world this week, that we would manifest the, the character, the love, the grace, the forgiveness, the patience, the compassion of Jesus Christ. And we ask all these things in the powerful name of our Savior. Amen. Thanks for the time, folks. Have a great week.